to have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, guys. Uh, I got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have on Mark Smith. Uh, it's the first time that I've had a chance to meet Mark, but it's one of the great things about the podcast is the guys I get to meet and then to get to sit down and have an in-depth conversation with them. And so I enjoyed this. Mark, I remember seeing him in the pages of Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, and he was he was one of the guys that was consistently successful with a bow in his hands, which is just so extremely difficult. And, and so... You know, we dive into that, and it, you know, when we first started out, there wasn't that much information out there. Even the the rangefinders weren't as accurate. The gear wasn't quite as good, and they, there just wasn't a bunch of information out about hunting muleys or high country muleys or bow hunting in general. And so, we had to kind of figure it out as we went along. And so we talk about that, and then we also talk about the changes in in bow hunting, and then you know, having to adapt and evolve to to still find consistent success. So. Um, just a great conversation, great back and forth, and, and uh, I enjoyed it. I think you guys will, too. Uh, sponsor for today's show is Sig Sauer Optics. Uh, I'm so impressed with my Sig Rangefinder. That thing is just amazing. Uh, it, it's accurate readings to both light and dark targets. Um, it has last target priority, so it'll shoot through grass, and it's got a power no- powerful enough laser in it uh, to where you really get good readings through brush and through grass. But I just I trust it. It's uh, the key to a lot of my success. And also, if you're a rifle guy or using one rangefinder, um, this thing you can get an app on your phone and and it'll figure out it, it'll help you dope in your shots it's just an amazing tool um, both for the bow hunter and for the rifle hunter uh, i've also been using their optics so i've been using their binos and their spotting scopes and i'm i'm super impressed with the clarity and 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 color fidelity and 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 crispness of their glass um, they're really doing a great job and offer it at a mid-range price so uh, make sure to check those out too and with that, um, yeah, just getting ready for this Arizona trip. Uh, we just got through Christmas here, just getting this podcast out this week. Um, just a great Christmas for the girls. Great to be hanging out with um, family and friends. And, and um, yeah, just getting ready for this. Um, going to go to the ATA and then come back and jump in a truck and head to AZ. So just super excited for that. Been working with that bow nonstop as much as I can. It's tough when it gets dark so early and, and uh, light so late, but, um, fitting it in and man, that, that new bow, I'm shooting that new, uh, that new Matthews verdicts and man, is that thing shooting good for me? So yeah, I think I got that all dialed in and yeah, just excited to get back to the woods and get hunting that, that desert is such a cool experience. So, um, yeah, be able to fit in a week or so and, and get away and go stomp around the desert, put in some good miles and, and hopefully get some stocks on some bucks and, and, uh, um, you know, you never know, may get lucky on one. So, um, super psyched for that. Um, uh, excited to get back together with the Eastman's. Um, I want to get together with Brandon Mason and do another Alaska podcast. We just had our Alaska beyond the grid drop. It's Alaska episode. So it was me caribou hunting this year and then Brandon Mason on his Alaska float trip and they paired them together for one episode. Um, just did a great job pairing them together, a bunch of cool shots in there and then, um, fun to harvest that caribou and kind of show the highlights of the hunt. So make sure to check that out on the YouTube. 
Um, it's the Eastman's Beyond the Grid, and it's the um, the uh, Alaska episode. So with that, let's get this thing rolling. So um, Mark Smith and I, Eastman's Elevated, here we go. Okay, I'm live here with Mark Smith. Uh, Mark, thanks again for being on. I sure appreciate it. Hey, yeah, man. Glad to be on here, Brian. Glad you finally asked me to be on the show. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've been following your social media. Um, been having a lot of fun following that and following along on your hunts. And um, I got to know you through Eastman's. Um, gosh, you've written a bunch of articles for Eastman's. And, and you started writing um, some, some Muley articles. And I, I remember one that you wrote that really stood out to me. And it had a, a bunch of the bucks you had harvested. But you were... You were harvesting these bucks before it was popular, you know, before before there was a lot of information out there, right? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think so. You know, I I, uh, I obviously have it. I'm 48, so I started bow hunting mule deer when I moved out west when I was 24. So it's it's been a little while. Yeah, you know, when I first started, um, uh, there, yeah, you would have to just look for magazines on the magazine rack and hope that bow hunter had something about mule deer maybe uh dwight shoe or somebody was <laughs> larry jones was writing about a mule deer that month but you know you had to wait and then uh fast forward somewhere in the late 90s you know i i think i still have the first issue of eastman's bow hunting journal and i got that i was i got it at like sportsman's warehouse or one of the outdoor stores and i was like man this is cool i can i can read about other people's experiences and i can share mine and a couple of years later, I think it was in 2000, I had a great season. And um, ironically, I think one of the very first uh, articles, I the absolute first article I ever wrote was edited, I believe, by Cameron Haynes or the guy right before him. That's so we both uh, started our Eastman's journey together about the same time there. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a little while, man. Right? Well, yeah, and I just um... – I remember, you know, and I, I probably started around the same time or maybe even a little bit after, but yeah, you couldn't find anything. And as far as research too, like trying to figure out where to go in which state, I mean, heck, even trying to drive to the unit, you had to buy all the nationwide maps just so you could get there and order all your topography maps. And it, it just took a ton of research, it seemed, uh, a ton of digging into these units. And then you never knew what you were going to get when you got there. Right, right. You know, ironically, I just wrote an article, um, and it was published in, uh, I don't remember if it was the last issue or the one just prior to of Mule Deer Foundation, the MDF magazine, and uh, the article was called uh, Familiar Ground, and in that, I killed the majority of the bucks people know me by. Like, you look at all my high country Colorado bucks, they all came from pretty much one place for the most part. And it was easy to draw units that sometimes you could even get on a second choice, but it was back in the early days and it turned into, you know, points, but you could get it every year. And I said right in that article, scouting, you know, it wasn't that long ago that digital scouting, social media and Google Earth did not exist. And that made scouting new country very difficult. Therefore, I didn't. I just found something I liked, stuck with it. And it panned out for me for, you know, over a dozen years or so of just going to these high basins and and shooting, you know, decent bucks every single year. Um, And it wasn't, 
you know, I'm an explorative type person. I, I like to do it, but, you know, I had a full-time job and my kids were small then. And so uh, I had to plan vacations just to go scout. And then I realized, man, I'm going to save my vacation for hunting because, you know, if you, if you travel out of state, you go to some places and you scout, you're, you're going to end up with some duds and then you're going to, you're going to two things. You'll have wasted your time scouting it. And then if you're stuck with the tag, you're like, well, maybe it'll get better during the hunt. And the next thing you know, your whole week or two week vacation is gone. And you spent 15 days, you know, between scouting and hunting in a spot that just doesn't fit your hunting style or does not have the animals you're looking for. And I got to where I wasn't willing to make that gamble anymore. And so I just stuck with what I liked for a long, long time, you know, and, and, and matter of fact, I have zero points in Colorado. So I may be headed back to that familiar ground again, again this year. So we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out, but yeah, that's a great topic. And it's a great, great way to start this thing. Cause it's, uh, scouting today may have changed. You know, if I, if I was coming along in today's world, like some of the younger generation, you know, the sub 30 year old guys coming into it, man, I, I may be a, I may be a different person or approached it much differently than what I did. That's for sure. Well, you sure did well. And yeah, when you find something that's working, um, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, if you got good high country basin where there's muleys and, and two, like I like to explore more into the unit. So, you know, say I find a good unit and good basins that I can count on. Well, well, then I go home and I, I start trying to figure out what's over the next hill or where's the next place I could move my camp or where's where's some other options within inside this unit or within inside these basins that I like. What else can I explore? What else can I find? And so you you still get to explore and learn new country it, it's just a little bit safer bet because you know that those mule deer populations are within those basins yeah absolutely yeah but you know i think it's it's good and bad right and so you know back then it was really tough to find information but nobody was putting in for any of those muley units with a bow they all thought we were crazy you know and so you could go to all those most popular spots and you could go bow hunt and there wasn't much pressure not many people doing there and the the same thing with onyx where it's made it it's so good and so easy to make sure that you're on public and find new ground you know in the same breath it used to be kind of fun to do it off a map and be able to figure out how many miles down the roads from this crossroad do I access. And so it kind of gave you a leg up back then, but there's still great hunting out there nowadays. And now there's so much information. There's just new challenges uh, of a lot of guys that like to enjoy and do what we're doing. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely easier and it's still hard. You still have to climb a mountain, get close to a deer, get an arrow in them. That's never going to change. I don't care how much technology changes. It's certainly a lot easier now with range finders and carbon arrows going over 300 feet per second and all that. And, you know, I was doing it before I had, I didn't have carbon arrows. I wasn't shooting 300 feet per second and I didn't have a range finder. So, you know, yeah, I did it when it was definitely a lot harder, but I still find it. I don't have a 200 entry to my credit. So therefore bow hunting big mule deer is hard period you know it no matter how many of them you've shot but getting getting to a spot and having equipment able to get it done and, and getting you know finding tags getting into areas and the learning curve definitely is much much uh shallower than it used to be you know it's a lot easier i guess is what i'm trying to say than 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 it used to be when i first started 25 years ago hunting mule deer and uh or, or, or almost any western game but but we're primarily talking about mule deer here 
but uh, I don't ever want to say it's easy. It's never going to be easy, but it's easier access. It's easier to find um, once you know what you're looking for. You know, people call me all the time or I get one of my one of the biggest things I get on social media, my private message inbox is, hey, can I shoot you a screenshot of my area and tell me how you would approach it? And, you know, I don't I have at night I have downtime just like anybody else, but I sure, man, I just want to see what other people's thoughts are. And uh, a lot of times, man, I'll get a screenshot of a Google earth and uh, <laughs> especially if it's in Colorado, man, I'll know exactly where that's at, you know, and I'll, cause I, I, uh, as, as time went by, as I got a little older and had more time, even though I kept hunting my units, I started scouting some of the really popular uh, favorite gunnison units and some of the favorite women units down south so even though i may not have hunted them i scouted some of them and uh, i would know exactly what some of these ridges are guys would start sending me trail camera pictures along with it and i'm like man you uh i know exactly where that's at but lucky for you i've already drawn a tag somewhere else you know i won't go in there (laughs) but i know i know exactly some of the ridges especially some of that stuff where david long used to hunt those those peaks in there are so prominent and you could you can just know exactly where he's at in some of those pictures and some of that footage and then when guys really got turned on to that in the um, later part of 2000s you know around 2008 9 10 11 man i i got a lot of uh questions about those units and uh and that's something i you know it, it's fun to do is to sit there and look at other look at maps and look at topography and and tell guys hey this is how I would approach it. And it's all pretty much the same thing, right? Find east facing basins with a lot of willows and wait till midday and, and go after them. You know, the technique's always going to be the same, but finding the deer is definitely the way you do it's definitely changed since when we started, buddy. Oh man, it sure has. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And, and even with the, uh, all the technology, like you stated earlier, you still got to climb in there and you still got to go see. So I get those same messages where I'm looking at a lot of different country, how we'd approach it or how we'd go in there and how we'd look at it. But it, it seems like even, you know, all the muley units and all the muleys I've hunted over the years, you know, I can look at Google Earth and I can definitely tell Bucky country and tell what I like and basins I want to check out. I get an idea, but it always seems like I have to proof it. it it's never yep. it's never a slam dunk. I can't just look at Google Earth and then go to that spot and know that spot's going to be good. Now, where I do my best scouting is like uh, where we were talking about earlier, learning basins, is once I get in a unit and I start finding deer, I can kind of transpose that information to other drainages within inside the unit, other places that, that look similar to that. And so that's where I kind of do my best scouting. But it, it's still all about putting boots to ground and going in there and looking for yourself and seeing if there there's a big deer in there. That's right. Yeah, because a lot of times uh, in my experience is um, – topography and and the way you would approach a hunt people's styles are different you know i i see a lot of really successful mule deer guys um that have success in areas that i just i don't jive with those kind of that type of terrain and and vice versa you know whether it's because i'm you know that guy might be five foot two and 120 pounds and i'm six foot two and 220 pounds i like to stand up right most of the time i'm a bigger taller dude i don't i don't like to get down real low to the ground very often so you know i've had really great success hunting in really 
thick, thick stuff like, uh, you know, the big deep willow patches along the edge of the timber where I've seen on videos, other guys just get flat out in the middle of the sagebrush that's ankle deep and they can move around and they find success. And those types of things never work for me. And, and then same with them. They're like, man, I tried to get in on some bedded bucks in the willows and I just could never get a shot because I couldn't see them. And I'm thinking, man, I'm a whole foot taller than that guy is or, or vice versa. You know what I mean? So I think, like you said, everybody's perspective on how you're going to be successful in a certain terrain, things you never think about are you're just not going to know until you go, until you try it there. You know, it just, it may sound kind of, kind of corny, but it's, for me, I started thinking about it over the years. How can this guy find success here when, you know, especially like in the country, like where I hunt in Utah or Nevada. And, and I just, I can go to a different part of that type of terrain and they're like, well, you're never going to get on the bucks there. And then that's where I find success. So yeah, back to the point, you just, you find the deer, locate them, and then you've got to just get in there and mix it up with them to figure out what your actual style is and how you're going to get it accomplished. I think. Man, that's a good point, Mark. Yeah, you're right. We're all built different and uh, different tendencies and tactics. And yeah, I, I tend to like more open terrain. If I can see them, I feel like I can kill them. If I can't see them, yep. I got a tough time. And I got a tough time when they when they disappear in those thicks and in those timber. Like I like to I like to hunt them when I can see them out in the open. You know, and if they do disappear in the thicks, usually my game is to be patient, wait for them to come back out in the evening or to show themselves so I can keep tagging on them but sneaking in that thick stuff i've just never done too well but you're right we all get kind of our tendencies that work for us and then i guess it's trying to find the terrain that lends itself to that yeah 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 it's just an observation i made you know i didn't, I didn't you heard it here first <laughs> i just figured it you know i just started going how because I talked to some of these guys at the shows, you know, and we share stories and I'm just, they're telling their story and I'm hanging on every word. And I'm going, that would never have worked for me. I would never ever have gotten that close. And, uh, I have some great friends in the industry that are just super stealthy, slick, killing machines. And I watch them creep around on the ground and they, they get out there and they just mix it up with them. And then, and then I'm like, I'm going to go do that too. And man, I'm just like, a you know, the difference between like, I don't know, like a, a horned toad and a snake, you know, I'm, I'm bouncing around and just, I'm not that low to the ground and man, those guys can just slink right in and kill them. So I always just made up for it by my shooting, you know, I'll get close enough and just shoot them. <laughs> That's how I used to handle that wide open stuff. But anymore, you know, uh, the older I get, the more I bow hunt, the more, the more I want it to be bow hunting. I'm not trying to, you know, rifle hunt with my bow and shoot them at a hundred plus yards. I, I still like the challenge of getting as close as I can get. And, and maybe that's why I'm just sticking to thicker cover these days is, you know, I, I tried hunting with traditional equipment for a long time and I just had some pretty poor results with it. And I just decided I'm not going to commit. I just can't or don't want to, I'll just be honest. I don't want to commit the amount of time it takes to stay super proficient with traditional gear. That's just a fact. So I said, man, I have this thing. I'll shoot bunnies with it, enjoy it. It's fun. But when it comes time to filling Western tags and being serious, you know, I'm, I still want equipment that I completely trust. But I want to keep it bow hunting. So now I've killed a lot of big game animals out west that were farther than the average guy would even attempt to shoot and, and had great success at it. But the more I get, in, you know, the older I get and the more I bow hunt and really, really, really appreciate the animals and love the animals so much that 
I don't want anything to go wrong. So I'm, I'm treating my compound almost like a recurve. You know, I'm trying to get as close as I can possibly get and just get those slam dunk shots. So I think it's just a transition of, uh, as my personal growth as a person, as a hunter, as a conservationist, I'm just, I'm wanting those real close experiences, but I still want the assurance of shooting modern equipment. You know what I mean? So i I'm, that's where I'm at in the hunting. And so all that said that I think that's why I just like sticking to the thick cover. Cause I just love spotting and stalking. And, and when the time is right and I can be patient, I will wait something out. I've, I've been known to be very patient and I can sit in a ground blind 13 hours and shoot an antelope. That doesn't bother me. So it's not impatience. I just, uh, my hunting style is I'm always moving, you know, I'll let the glass work early in the mornings and late in the afternoons, but, there's a, there's, I, I used to just, you know, when in doubt, back out, try not to blow deer out of a basin. And I still think if you're hunting a world-class buck, that's the way to go. But if you're a guy like me now where I'm 48, I live in Texas, I'm going to take a week and a half, maybe two weeks off. I'm going to go out west. I'm going to hunt. If I find a Pope and Young 150 class four point out in a willow patch, man, I'm, I'm happy with that buck. I'm going to go out after him. But if I blow him out, man, there's another one over the next basin. I'll go find another buck of that caliber. So I don't mind moving around and blowing bucks out of basins. Like I used to be so terrified of it, but anymore I send, I can, I, I can turn things around really quick and make that scenario work for me just as quick as it'll fail for me. But now all that said, if it's a, if it's biggest buck I've ever seen, you know, over 200 inches or it's a world-class buck of a lifetime, I'm going to approach it much differently. I'm going to, I'm not going to want to bump him. I'm not, I'm going to sit there and watch him day in and day out till he makes the wrong move and I'll go after him. But if I'm hunting average bucks, I'm just going to go out and just mix it up with them. Yeah. No, uh, you made a bunch of good points there. You know, I find though with those giant bucks and, and I, you know, I locate and hunt those type of bucks and it, and I've been fortunate to harvest them, but man, it's like, Sometimes I put like um, too high of a prize on it, or I try to be too patient. Like I'll find that buck that blows my mind. He's a 200 incher, and like you say, I want to watch him and I want to wait and I want to wait for him to make a mistake. But what I end up doing is I end up waiting like, you know, four or five days watching this thing and never quite, you know, come up with the perfect scenario. Or maybe I do think it's the perfect scenario, but when I finally make a play three, four days in, I'll bump a two point I didn't see and he bounces into him or I'll I'll get a win that'll squirrel. <laughs> yep. So man, I I just gotta hunt those things and I never stalk recklessly. Like I'm never gonna make a mistake, give myself away, you know, show my hand. I'm I'm not gonna expose myself to the deer. And if there's no approach or if there's deer in the way, I won't make a play. I'll wait, you know, I'll be patient. But but boy, when you see a good opportunity, it's almost like you just got to go get into them and see if you can make it happen. And and deer are just going to win a lot. Like I, you're not going to win every time. Like failure is a prerequisite of bow hunting. You're gonna fail on your stocks. <laughs> you're gonna miss shots, and you're gonna have to pick yourself up and go find another one. Go make it happen. And even throughout the years, holding really high standards on bucks, you know, 180 and better. Like I still find myself blowing bucks, and you know, I messed up a stock on a really good buck this year that was well over 200 but it, it just seems like um your style of hunting you almost got to play a big buck the same way you'd play an average buck like it it just doesn't seem to to benefit me or do me any better to wait days on end to make a play on that buck i find that's right yeah yeah it's, there's no it's, it's there's, interesting there's no on that yeah it's just that's you're absolutely right um 
you know, it's pretty, and because of the units I'm hunting, probably, you know, I've, I've not seen that many bucks of that caliber. Now, Utah, I have, uh, on the Navajo where I hunt quite a bit back in the day, I used to always turn up a giant and then, uh, some New Mexico stuff, but late season, but my Colorado spot was always good for, you could you always get a truckload of one forty fives to one sixty class bucks. Every bowl is gonna have something in there if you're happy with that. And you know, people I think people discount that number. And and, and I don't I'm not even I have all of these deer that would make a record book and I've never put one in there. I just don't that's not important to me. It's important in the overall big picture. It's good for conservation and wildlife and especially for bow hunters. I, I'm a member of the Pope and Young Club, but I don't put anything in there and I don't know if it's because I'm cheap or I'm lazy. I half the stuff I score and go, and I'm a pretty good scorer. I can get it within an inch or whatever an official scorer is going to get it. But I just, you know, I, sometimes the bigger stuff I'll score it and go, ah, I just wanted to know what it was. And that's great. But I'm after a mature animal. So if a deer's old enough to breed, if he's, if he's got four points and he's over four years old, or he's a big three pointer, he, basically if he's just breeding those, he's old enough to have, have lived a few seasons, man, he's good enough for me. I'm just going to go after it. And whenever the good Lord puts one way really big in front of me in bow range, then that's the day I'm going to get really big ones. But the rest of the years, I'm just going to shoot really nice ones. But we can discount numbers like 145, 147 and three eights or 162. If in, and everybody in their mind believes they're in the caliber of guy that's after 180 plus bucks, but 90% of your listeners are, if they just held a 190 inch deer in their hands and realized what they're actually talking about, the size of that, what it takes to get that big, I'm telling you, most of those guys are just going to lay arrows into those 145, 150 bucks at first chance they get. And they're thinking they're shooting something much bigger, right? What I'm saying is don't put so much emphasis on these numbers that we're talking about. I'm never going to discount a Pope and Young caliber deer of any size ever. That's a nice, that's a nice animal. And for somebody out there, that's the buck of their dreams. That's the buck of their lifetime, you know. So when I'm sitting here talking about, well, this basin's full of this or that basin's full of that, I've been very fortunate to find basins that are full of those kind of animals. And, man, I'm, I'm going to be content shooting those types of animals as long as they're mature uh, until I find those special, special bucks. And, you know, I've, I've been bow hunting mule deer since 1994. And... um that's a long time, and I can probably count on less than both of my hands how many bucks over 200 inches I've seen, and I've spent a lot of time doing it. Maybe it's because I haven't been as many places, you know. Maybe I haven't been – I've never been to Wyoming. I haven't even hunted Wyoming. Uh, but between the places I've hunted, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, man, I don't know if I'm just unlucky or if I just I just don't have uh, – or haven't hunted enough. I don't know what it is, but – I can talk to a lot of guys that say, you know, they'll see multiple 200 inch deer every year. And man, I've held a few 200s in my hands and I'm just going, man, that thing is, <laughs> that's just almost unbelievably big, you know, especially like a typical 200, like my friend Jeremy Duggar shot. I was there when he shot it. That's the biggest typical I've ever seen in my life. And it was, it was 216, uh, and then netted like 205. And that was just an incredible, incredible deer. But anyway, kind of a tangent, but. I just wanted your, you know, the listeners to know. Um, I I say openly on my social media. I don't I don't score doesn't mean anything to me. And here I'm dropping numbers, but I just want people to know I'm using it as a reference. So we're all on the same page. 
Yeah, me too. I get hung up on that too. And there, there is, um, yeah, with all the social media nowadays and guys killing really good deer. You need to grab that, Mark. Uh, oh no, I don't no. think so. Um, yeah, there, I think there's, UPS. there's a lot of guys killing really nice deer, and and uh, comparison is the thief of all happiness. You know, you start comparing yourself to every buck you see that comes across your feed, you're not going to be very happy. You know, like um, you're, you're going to constantly fall short of your goals. And, and I'm with you, yeah. Mark. Like you, like you throw a 150, 160 inch four point in front of me, and he's heavy, four, five, six years old. If you don't get excited, something's wrong with you. That that's a dang big deer. <laughs> and I I think too. Yeah. Like, I use it as a reference, and I get caught in it a little bit too much, too, as I start referring to numbers and what I'm shooting and what I'm going after. Uh, but but really, I'm looking for a mature deer like you that's heavy. Mass makes the deer for me. If I know he's four yes. years old, five years old, or older, like, I'm stoked with that deer. I killed a good one in Montana this year that goes 160 inches, and I was beyond elated because he's heavy yes. and dark-horned and bladed in, in that older buck that I'm after. But and, and two, you made a good point. Like, I think a lot of guys don't actually put a tape to their deer. They just say what they think it is or the biggest number that they can come up with. Like, I see a lot of guys talking about a 180-inch deer, and, and, you know, it's not a 180-inch deer. Guys like to stick about 20 inches on top of what they really are. So so you're right. Like, 140, 150, 160-inch deer, those are really good bucks, and, and uh, those get me excited as well. And I kind of match my... I, I match my goals and expectations, you know, with with what the unit can produce and the quality that I'm seeing in there. And if if that's the the top end buck that I'm gonna see, well, I'm all in. I'm gonna chase that buck for a week straight and try to get an arrow in him. Yeah, no. So yes, sir. I, I, I'm with you there, man. I get kind of caught in that trap as well. And I am not all about big deer. I'm about mature deer. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's good to know about you because that, uh, you know, everybody's got their reasons, and none of us are wrong. But it's it's awesome to say, hey man, I, I know what I know what Brian's all about, and that's that's uh, we're on the same page. So we can really relate when we uh, when we're talking about things and looking at each other's stuff and appreciating each other. Like on social media, it's like it's good to know that's where you come from. Because you know I didn't I didn't you know who I didn't know what made you tick, man. I've been watching you on TV and been reading your writing as long as you've been reading mine and. I don't know what makes you tick, but I know you're successful at it. But now, now I know that what's got you, you know, makes you tick. It's just, it's kind of cool. It's cool to know, man. Well, yeah, and so it's I cool mean, about these podcasts is we all get to know each other a little better, isn't it? Like you hardly ever sit down with a buddy and just talk for an hour straight about hunting. And I, I would say the biggest thing for me is I love the adventure. I love that a working class average guy like me, a construction worker, can go embark on these amazing adventures in all these western states and it's affordable and feasible for me. I can I can put all this effort into my training and into my shooting and into my research and then like I get a week to go test my skills in the mountains and I get to go push my absolute limits mentally and physically challenging myself to try to get it done on a mature animal. I, and I'd say that's what drives me the most. And I just think it's great that, you know, we had that opportunity when we started bow hunting and, and that opportunity exists today and sure things have changed in technology and maybe it's easier, maybe it's tougher with the pressure, but there's still that opportunity to go have these amazing adventures out on public ground, you know, with some of the best scenery around. So I'd say that's what really drives me. Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 why ninety five percent of my hunting you see on social media, or if you come into my 
my man cave where I'm at. You look at all my photos and things in here. I've got a backpack on, and uh, my doorbell ring. You heard it a while ago, and you're like, hey, Mark, you need to get that. It was at UPS delivering brand-new boots, and uh, they're, I'm trying something new for the first time, and I got them in my hands right here. And I'm just sitting here going, man, <laughs> you know, that, I put my boots on the mountain with a pack on my back, and I go because I like the adventure. I like, I like knowing that every – thing is stacked against me from you know there's a lot of difference in waking up in a nice cozy warm cabin or camper eating cheerios and watching cartoons on a saturday morning or westerns like my dear lease here in texas you know that's my big thing is i i wake up on saturday mornings in my camper i put on a pot of coffee i get out my honey nut cheerios and i put on uh grit tv and i watch some old western while you know while i'm sitting there waking up and then I get my bow or my rifle and I head down to the woods and I go hunt for the day. And then I come back at lunch and I take a nap and I go back out. Man, I love that. I absolutely love it. It's so fun to do when I'm hog hunting and whitetail hunting here in Texas. But it is so much, it is such a contrast compared to when I point my tundra out west and I head to Utah or Colorado and I leave the trailhead with every single thing I'm going to need for up to about nine or ten days. And I'm only going to go wherever these boots are going to take me. And I'm only going to have whatever's in this pack on my back. And most of it, my entire, my life depends on it. Whether, you know, every decision I make, everything I do that day, uh, my, my very life depends on some of those decisions. And, uh, and then if I come out with a mule deer or an elk strapped to that pack, uh, there's no matter how comfortable and fun one style of hunting is, it'll never at any level ever be as rewarding as dropping down to the trailhead with your bow in your hand and your packs weighing really heavy on your back and just, you know, blood up to your elbows and sweat dripping off of you and miserable in your feet, no matter how great the boots are, your feet are hurting. But that is, that is the best feeling. And that's, that's why I am an adventure, you know, backpack style hunter, like you just said, because the size of whatever that is that I chose to send an arrow through has absolutely zero effect on that feeling you have when you sit down on the tailgate and take your backpack off when it's full. There's just nothing that can compare to that to me. Yeah, right. Us as humans, we're meant to have challenge and we're meant to have struggle. And uh, that's never more evident than when you're on a backpack hunt. Like you're you're flush on struggle and and uh, challenge. You know, it's it's one of the toughest <laughs> yeah, endeavors you can take on. You know, it's a uh, it's yeah. mountaineering. You know, but but mountaineers only have to go up the mountain and down. We got to live up there for ten days and try to chase around a wily muley and then you know sneak within a stone's throw of them and get a perfect arrow into them and then pack them all the way back out like uh, mountaineers with a bow. It's it's just a it's a different breed but it it's also like you made a good point like the decisions you make directly affect your safety and and in life nowadays we don't have much of that even though driving a rig is probably one of the most dangerous things we do we don't think of it that way it's really safe we go to work we come home you know we we fill up our glass with water out of the tap you know we we take a shower and a shave we, you just don't think about you're so removed from struggle in everyday life and so like when you get out there and you have to actually make those decisions that affect your safety and uh, affect your well-being and then you know you're also trying to harvest a deer but but those those decisions have such weight to them you know and i i love that mm. that feeling of being out there and doing that and being on your own like I, it definitely feels like it ties back to something you know originally in our dna as hunter gathers oh yeah for sure 
you know, I just, uh, I've not had, I've had a few, you know, I've, I don't hunt Montana or Wyoming. Not that I don't want to, it just hasn't hit my docket yet, but I, I haven't been in grizzly bear country, but I have had, uh, for a guy that only hunts the lower 48 in pretty, what I call safe States, I've had several bear run-ins and, and a couple of really, uh, hairy ones, one particularly very bad one in Colorado. And, uh, I just, but I haven't had that much danger other than weather. Inclement weather has been the scariest things I've had to endure on my uh, adventure hunting, um, except the one and maybe two bear encounters. But this year in Colorado, and I was on a rifle hunt. Uh, it wasn't a bow hunt, uh, but it was my, I was, I, I took a backpacking tent and I went in a little ways and I stayed in for all oh, the whole well, it was a nine-day hunt. I was there 10 days. I don't remember exactly when I got there. Or I think I left the day after season closed. But on the very last, the Saturday before the season closed, I was about three miles in and about 40 miles from any town, and I got a kidney stone, and it it, it knocked me out. I mean, I, I, I was vomiting and blacked out. I've had kidney stones before, and I felt it coming on, and I knew – I didn't want to get trapped that evening down in this big, I was in a humongous canyon. So when I say I was three miles back, I was three miles straight down. It was three miles straight back up to my truck. I don't know if you've ever had a kidney stone, but there are listeners that have had, you know, it's like, it was like one of those fears that were in the back of my mind. Like, you know what? The odds of me ever getting one of these on a backcountry hunt are probably slim. But the day prior to that, I'd laid down 17 miles on my Fitbit. According to my Fitbit, I had done 37,000 steps, which was like 17 miles. And I, I just tore down country. I was looking for a buck of a lifetime, you know. And I know for a fact I was dehydrated. I had not drank enough. My, 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 uh, they said at the hospital that my, um, potassium levels were just like through the roof low. Like they're like almost to the point that they weren't even let me go until I got my potassium back up. And I don't even, I don't even know what that does to affect me other than, you know, I eat bananas after I work out. So I don't get leg cramps, you know, or after I run a 5k or something, but my potassium levels are really low. So I pushed and pushed and pushed. And I knew I was dehydrated and that can bring on a kidney stone. If you've got one that can, that can make it break loose. But man, that was one of the worst in all of my years, the bear encounter and some inclement weather and getting turned around a couple of times, I've had some scary moments, but man, hiking out of there, then that 40 mile drive by myself, afraid I might pass out again was, you know, I have to, I think I'd have to be bleeding out of a major artery before I'd ever even call for a flight for life helicopter or something. But I was really, really teetering on man, maybe I should get a helicopter in here or something, but I just didn't want, you know, as men, we just, we think we can grind through it, but looking back, grinding through it doesn't mean putting someone else's life in danger. You know, some people say, man, if you ever had to happen again, just call an ambulance, call the helicopter, because, you know, if you black out from the pain and you head on into an 18 wheeler, what good did it do you anyway? You know, you, you still, you know, you're putting other people's lives at risk, but that was something that just happened to me last month, you know, or a month, in October, the last week of October, that just happened. So that was that was a pretty scary moment. Man, I'd say that's uh, that's as scary as it gets, especially when you're packed in like that and trying to make it out, and you know you're in in intense pain. Um, you you uh, yeah you, you knew pretty well it was a kidney stone and not something else going on, but it had to play tricks with your mind. 
Yeah, had I never had a kidney, you know, and that's what the worst thing about kidney stones is your first one. Typically your first one, I've had a couple, two or three. I, I, me and my wife were talking about it. I can't remember exactly how many I've had, but it's been more than one. But the thing about a kidney stone is that if it's passable, now if it's, all of mine have been passable, meaning you're able to get rid of it. You can just get rid of it. And, and, but there are some that are big and they're large and they have to be, uh, you know, yeah, they have to use technology to break them loose so that you can pee them all out, the pieces out, whatever, or surgically remove them. And I've never had one like that. But it once when you don't know what it is, you really think you're going to die. You don't you don't know what's going on. You feel like something is just trying to pull your spine out <laughs> through your bottom end. It's a terrible feeling, and you don't know what's going on. But once you have them, and, and, and as soon as you've had one, after you've had one, as the next time you get one, you know there is no doubt immediately. It's not food poisoning. It's not anything else. It's not a kidney infection. It's not any it, – you know immediately. Like this time, I felt it break loose from my kidney and start down my urethra. I felt it coming. And there were times I thought I was going to be able to pass it. But what happens is when a kidney stone breaks loose and it's traveling down your, through, from your kidney to your bladder, that's where the trouble happens. And you'll feel it on one side or the other. Um, you know, maybe your listeners can use this information. If you ever feel intense, dull pain, a dull, throbbing pain um, for, from your kidney uh, for men, say, down to your groin area, um, it's basically from your kidney to your testicles. Okay. You, you're going to feel pain and you're going to feel a throbbing dull pain. And at some point you can actually feel the kidney stone moving through the urethra. Well, if you can get past that pain and, I, and, and the only way you can is, is just a ton of ibuprofen or something to knock you out. You know, back in the old days when I got them, I, they gave me morphine one time, they gave me Demerol and I hate it because you're out for like days after you get, like for me, I am. Cause I don't, I don't even take aspirins for headaches. You know, I just, I just don't take any medications. Well, if they give you morphine or something like that for intense pain, then you know, I would be out for a full 24 to 48 hours. I'm just, I'm out, you know, I'm going to sleep it off. And that's usually when you're relaxed and you're out, you, you, you pee or you urinate and you pass the, the small stone. It comes out. Well, um, this time they gave me, uh, it's called, uh, it's called, they call it the kidney stone medicine. And it's just a high powered ibuprofen that doesn't have, has none of those side effects. You don't, you don't get droggy. You don't get sleepy. It just immediately zeroes in on the pain area and it stops the inflammation. And then they gave me Flomax, which is for people that have, uh, you know, urinary problems as you get older, you know, older guys with like prostate issues, they have to, uh, take, take Flomax. Well, they gave me Flomax to open everything up down there in this medicine. And man, I, I passed the thing and was headed back to the mountain that night. I mean, I don't know if that's, this could be too much information for your listeners. I don't really know, but it's, uh, I know that if, if I, if, if I was on the mountain today and I had enough ibuprofen and Flomax, I think I could just pass a kidney stone and just keep on hunting, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, that's so intense. And you think, what are the chances it's going to happen on a backcountry hunt? But in that same breath, just like you were saying, you put such ex exertion on your body. And, and I know, like, these hunts, they're the most, you know, I've ran marathons and ultra marathons. A 10-day hunt, an ultra marathon doesn't hold a candle to the wind of it. 
because you you know you're every day you're pushing hard like like i always think you make all these plans for these backcountry hunts and then when you get there it's totally different because you're sleep deprived maybe you can't sleep because of the altitude you're grinding so hard and even though my body's used to exertion man that puts a huge stress on your body so it makes sense that it happened then and you know i think the same thing like um you know we all have our weak points here and there and and uh, the facts are is we're all getting older, too, you know. We're all going to have to deal with issues or problems here or there. And, and, man, I worry about, like, like slipping my back out. You know, I've really got my back in good shape over the last, I don't know, 10 years working yoga and strength training and things. I've really got it to a good place to where now I don't pull it out that bad. But before, sometimes I'd pull out my back, and I couldn't even get into my truck to drive home, or I couldn't, you know, I'd have to lay in the bed for a week, you know, to to get it healed up. And so you think about that on those backcountry hunts, and and that's when that stuff's going to hit you, I think, you know. Boy, that can be dang scary if you're miles back down (laughs) in a canyon like you were. Yeah, it was. And and, uh, I definitely would have been more scared, more, more concerned if I didn't if I didn't know what it was, but being as I had had kidney stones before, I was prepared. I I felt it coming. I knew what it was. And I knew that I tried to wait that one out. To be honest, I tried to wait it out, but I got very nauseous and I didn't want to hike. I really wanted to fill my tag. I found some really big bucks, man. I really, really, really did not want to come home with that tag in my pocket and i was down to the end like i said i was on saturday evening of the nine day hunt the second saturday so i only had sunday to hunt and a lot of times personal preference i just don't hunt sundays i just i use those as travel days no matter what the season is it's just um just a personal preference of mine so but i had already made my mind up (laughs) i'm gonna hunt sunday this time because i only got nine days and i finally found these i'd seen a couple of big now they were migration deer they were moving but I knew the big bucks were on their feet and I was really wanting to get one. So I was going to try to just grind through this, this kidney stone, but, um, it just, I, I started getting nauseous and I wasn't necessarily hiking up out of the Canyon. I was just kind of walking in circles, but I had my pack on, I had my rifle and I was kind of walking in circles, but kind of in the direction I need to go. Things got worse, but I kept, you know, I kept eyes on the little basin I was watching, but I was kind of moving. And then all of a sudden, I just felt that that sensation. I knew I was going to vomit. And I just went down on my hands and knees, and I vomited. And right after that, I passed out. And I don't know if you've ever passed out, but when you pass out, it's just like this. Everything turns black, and you have center vision. And it comes down to this little point, of, and then boom. You don't remember anything except you're either laying on your back looking up at the sky or in my case I was on all fours looking at the ground kind of on one side and I knew I was like man I just blacked out from you know because your body can only your body can only handle so much pain before it just shuts itself down and that's what passing out is and I passed out from it then you can't physically say I'm going to you know I'm going to grind through this and not pass out once your body says no I got to shut down because I can't even take any more of this pain you're going to pass out it's best to already be down on all fours. Don't be standing upright with a 50-pound pack on your back and a $3,000 rifle in your hand because you're going to crack something or tear something up. So it's best just to sit down, set the gun down, and just just 
set down because it's if you're going to go out, it's better just be in a setting position. In my case, I was just on all fours kind of. And then I knew then, okay, this is bad. My body is telling me this is going to end up being a lot worse. So I drank a lot of water. Well, what happens is when you have a kidney stone passing and, and everything's blocked, you can't pee. And if you can't pee and you're still drinking water trying to flush it, your bladder is just getting fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. That's causing more pain because you're supposed to flush it out. You know, you need to flush, flush your body out. So here I am filling my kidneys up, my bladder up, and I can't even, you know, urinate on top of the pain. And so, you know, I started, I started hiking because I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't urinate and I need to now because I've taken in all this water. I got to get going. I, something's gonna, so I just got to go. So I started going and I was almost back to the truck when I felt the severe pain come on again. And I went ahead and just sat flat down on the ground and I halfway blacked out that time. And, uh, then I got back to my truck and I didn't have cell service. So I had to drive a little ways. Um, I had my window rolled down, my head hanging out. So I had air on my face, you know, just keeping me awake the best I could. And I just kept driving until I got a signal. Then I called Jeremy, my friend there in Farmington, New Mexico, and said, hey, his wife is from the town I was hunting in there. I said, hey, just tell me where the hospital is at. They texted me an address in a way that I could just hit go on it and my GPS. And I had Siri just take me to the hospital. And then I had them text my wife. And it was, it was a mess, man. I mean, to have all those days and to be that far in, I was almost to success. I was right within, I could taste it. I was within, I was in, I could just reach right out and just touch them. I was there. I just needed to see the buck. I'd honed in. I'd found the great migration route. The bucks were traveling. I'd unseen two big ones, and I had one whole day left, and then that struck. And that was the first time I've been very blessed in my life where I've never had to cancel a hunt or come home on a hunt. I've never had tragedy, knock on wood. I've not had tragedy. I've not had uh, any type of thing happen where I had to come home. So a lot of people could say, man, that's really bad luck or get really mad about it. Or I just looked at my hunting career my whole life. And I, I said, man, I still got, I went to the hospital that night. Yeah, it was my share. I mean, after insurance, I think I still paid like 2,500 bucks. I think the bill just came in. My wife said, so I'm going to have to pay that. But the thing is, is everything checked out. I passed the stone and I still got to hunt Sunday and I went right back up the mountain after the stone was passed, man, I was, I felt great. Went right back out and hunted, but I didn't have, I didn't have to cancel the hunt. I didn't have to miss any of the hunting. It was already dark when I got sick, basically, you know? So yeah, it was unfortunate, but I still got to hunt. I didn't, I didn't punch my tag. I, you know, I didn't get, I did not, I chose not to go as hard on that last day. I didn't go as far in where I thought I'd get bucked. I just, even though even though the kidney stone had passed, man, I was still under some type of sedation, and and I was still dehydrated. My, you know, I still, no matter what, even if I killed the buck next to the truck, I still got to quarter it up and put it in the truck, and you know, I was gonna have to do some exertion. And uh, the doctor said, just take it. You know, you're okay, but just take it easy. Well, taking it easy doesn't mean you you're not gonna put a 50 pound pack on and go back in three miles and try to kill this buck. So I took it easy the last day and. Still saw some nice four points. Just chose not to shoot one because it wasn't the one I was after. So, anyway, pretty good little, pretty good story, but turned out okay. 
Oh man, I'd say. Well, and, and you talk about like you can be upset and that medical bill coming in. Like the one thing you have in life that you have control over is your attitude. Like, and bad things can happen to you, you know, where, you know, in the hunt, you can have hunting pressure move in, they can spook the buck you're after, you know, you can miss a shot on the buck you're after, like, there's so many things that can go wrong, but the one thing you do have is you do have your attitude, like, it's just how you look at things, and I always treat them, you know, as a learning experience, I'm always trying to learn and get better, or, or when something bad like that happens, just saying, man, it could have been a lot worse. I sure am glad I made it to the hospital. I sure am glad I, <laughs> I took care of it, and I did get to hunt the last day. And, yeah, I couldn't go as hard as I wanted to. You know, I had some restrictions, and I didn't kill a buck. But, you know, I, I made the most out of it, and I, I did the best I could under those circumstances. But I always think that in life, that, that the one thing you have is your attitude. And um, if you can pick yourself back up from things like that, and pick yourself up from a miss or from a missed stock or from a, a failure and just learn from it and go, all right, well, it is what it is. That was really exciting. That was really thrilling. Now I'm going to look to try to recreate that again. It's amazing like how many times it'll come together and you end up arrowing a buck on the last day, even after you missed one four or five days in or whatever the case is. But yep. you always have your attitude. That's right. And just positive mental attitude is probably – that's the number one thing. Um, well, I mean, I'm a man of faith, so my faith is number one all the time. But besides, you know, along with my faith, keeping a positive mental attitude that, hey, man, I'm just, I keep everything in perspective. I am fortunate to live in this country where I have this opportunity and the freedom to roam around. No matter how bad the day on the mountain is, it's still a day on the mountain. And I am so fortunate and blessed for that. And uh, I never, I never let that get too far out of, out of my sights. Well, that's it. And if we're only enjoying it, if we're successful, you're, you're not going to enjoy bow hunting very much. Cause there, <laughs> not cause there, very there, much. There's a lot of days where you're not successful. A lot of days where you make mistakes and, and like, you gotta, you, you gotta embrace the whole journey. You gotta embrace the whole process, the struggle in it, how tough it actually is. You, you gotta embrace all that. And when you, like you say, when you got a free day and you're out there and you're in the mountains, like you better enjoy yourself. You know, you better have a smile on your face and, you know, you've you've taken the time away from your family, off of work. You've made all these arrangements, and then to be in the woods and be upset because you didn't kill the buck you're after, like that's small potatoes. You know, you you better start yeah. enjoying the journey and the time you have in the mountains. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I have one more question for you too, Mark. So you you talked earlier how you like to glass the mornings and evenings, and then you like to keep moving on hunts. Like that's your number one thing. Do you um do you travel like a mobile vantage point where you're glassing every basin, every opening, and then you're going to the next basin, or will you actually still hunt through timber and bedding ground, or or what's your approach when you're when you're hunting like that? You know, I said before, I for the most part, I hunted the same area uh, in Colorado. That what I meant was I hunted the same unit, and I hunted pretty much just a couple of basins within that unit. And one basin was your typical, uh, the peak's like 13,000 feet. So you'd usually get up just below that, just about where the vegetation stops, get yourself a little bit of cover from some of that stunted, uh, juniper spruce or, or, uh, I think it's a spruce uh, species that you get in those little bitty 
spruce trees where you have some cover, shade, somewhere you can set in, sh- in glass. And um, <clears throat> I'd never skyline myself ever under any circumstances. I, I never, I mean, I just rarely ever walk down the spine of a mountain. You know, when I say I get up high, I'm making sure that uh, I'm not giving up my location ever by sight or scent if I can help it. That's why I always, no matter what, stay above the deer, but I stay below the skyline. So I was uh, that one basin, you know, I'm the, like I say, the very highest peaks are in that 12, 5 to 13,000 range. So, and I'm relatively uh, somewhat lower than that. So let's just say I'm between 11, 5 and 12,000 feet. I will get right at the edge of vegetation in the mornings and I'm facing kind of what I have found, uh, mainly in Colorado. Um, if you're on a mountain and you're looking, everybody's perspective of what East facing and South facing is, is so different. I've, you know, I've had guys say, this is an East facing deal. I'm like, no, that's, no, that, that's not East facing. You're on the South side of the mountain looking to the North but you're calling this west face over there east facing that's not that's west facing you know it's it's all in how you perceive it but what i'm saying is i'm on a mountain to my right is the east and everything down there has got everything on the north and the east of me is willow patches with some cover and the sun's going to come up to my right i'm looking to the right that's east facing so if the sun comes up it's going to shine straight down on that Anywhere I have found above Timberline in Colorado that has willow patches and water and cover on an east-facing slope, I'm always, I can almost always find deer on those things. So I try to get, I will try to approach that either from the east, so I got the sun coming up over my back, shining down there, looking to see the deer moving around, you know, in the sunlight. I don't, I don't want to be east-facing. I'm going to be looking into the sun, so I'm going to be to the east looking back towards the west and the sun's coming up on that east facing slope there north and and east facing slope and as the deer are moving around the sun gets higher and higher and they go to bed i'll start my day like that but if i go well if i'm gonna i'm gonna hard bed them hard bedding them means they're gonna get up and feed they may bed down at daylight they may i'm the sun may can't come up on them and they're still laying down then they might get up at 7.25, and they might feed till 9.25, and they might lay down. And so many times I'm like, okay, that deer bedded down. It's 9.25. He bedded down. I'm going after him. Well, the thermals aren't even where you want them by then. I mean, you want I want the sun baking that side of the mountain. I want him in the shade. And when I say hard bedded, means he's gonna he's not going to get back up and feed till he's already chewed everything in his cut. He's going to lay there. He's going to process that food. He's going to get his daily nap, and he's going to sleep from, say, 10 to 2. And he, the, sun might, the sun might change on him around noon, and he's going to have to get up and move again for just to move around the tree a little bit and lay right back down. But he's going to stay right there until, you know, mid-afternoon. He's going to get up and feed again. Every six hours, he's going to get up and feed. Once I hard bet him, say, after 10 a.m., and the, sun, the sun's baking the side of the mountain, it's August 29th, sun's up it's 78 79 degrees maybe eight in the 80s it's already warm and that you can just see that air rising up the mountain then i'm going to go ahead and that's where i'm going to make my stock i'm going to move in on the deer and the, and the only other time it's better than that is if it's raining and if it's, you know they're bedded down and you get some rain because then 
man, you got you got a lot of it helps with your scent and it helps with your cover, you know, your sound, which I think everybody knows that. But I really prefer if I had my choice, I would like to be stalking a deer at about one thirty in the afternoon in a rainstorm because oh, man, they'll and even and when they get up, they're going to stand up and shake and they might mill around. And that's just going to give you even better. You're not shooting at a bedded down deer. You're going to get a deer that stood up in his bed, shook a little bit to get the water off. He's going to stand right there. And so many times you can just key in on a deer like that. That's my prime favorite time to shoot a deer. But I'd say in this room, I've got eight velvet bucks shoulder mounted. And I don't know how many, uh, you know, little plaques or whatever, but almost every one of these that I can look at that are Colorado deer were shot between noon and two in the middle of the day. You know, that's just, that's just when I was able to get in on them. Um, so your question was, what's my preference? That That's my preference. So if, I, if I can bet them hard, bet them, then go in after them middle of the day. And if it's raining, as man, that's, that's just, that is, that is just the recipe for me to make it even better. And then, but the thing is, is once I, and maybe it's because of the topography, the distance, and just just the place that I hunt. Once I do commit, though, whether I'm successful or not in that area, there are blind spots kind of to the south on that same side of the mountain that I know deer and elk bed in, and I always have a deer tag or elk tag in my pocket most of the time. If I'm going to Colorado when I live there. If I have a uh, deer tag in my pocket for these high country units, I'm I'm going to have it was a lot easier as a resident because it was like forty five bucks. Now it's six hundred miles, seventy five dollars or something. But I'd have an elk tag in my pocket. So what I would do is I would find it. Oh, that's a nice four point. I'm going to go after him, and I'd go over there and either I killed him or I bumped him. And when I bumped him, a lot of times they went into the timber. Then I would just sit down and finish my nap. I would just lay right in his bed and just let him get around there to the timber. Now I might be going after him blind, but that's my second that's my second wind. Now this afternoon I got a plan. I've bumped him into timber, so I'm still gonna keep the wind in my favor and I'm gonna go into that timber and try to shoot that buck on a second time, or I might run into some elk and I'll just fill my elk tag if I get a chance. That's was one of my favorite ways to hunt in my favorite place in Colorado. Oh, that's, that's a lot of information, but that was, that was my key to success for a lot of my bucks. Oh, so many interesting points there, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, first off, like the East facing slopes, like, um, I, uh, you're so keyed into those east facing slopes so that's really interesting yeah because i it seems like the different places i've hunt i have you know in some mountain ranges they seem to hang on this side and some mountain ranges they seem to hang on that side but for the most part i find them on all four different sides north facing south facing east facing west facing like i've never really keyed into those east facing slopes that you're talking about so that's really interesting and it sounds like it grows the type of habitat that you you like where it, it grows those those thick willow patches that you're keying in on uh so so that was really interesting the rain um so i'm with you like i love to get um i, I love that i call it the secondary bed but i like your term better the hard bed where you know they're going to be laying there for a while and then you know i like to hunt them in the afternoons when i got those thermals so the really interesting thing is the rain like i I don't know that I've ever killed a buck in the rain. The rain seems to screw me up because it messes with the thermals. Have you ever found that the rain messes with your wind up there? Oh, yeah, that'll make it swirl for sure. But what I've seen, and and it's just, it's just something I observed, 
is when when there's a constant when there's a constant wind or a constant thermal and the deer knows the direction that scent's coming from and you blow you you've been blown by deer you had the wind shift and the deer knew exactly which direction that wind came from and he left out in a hurry i got two bucks in here that i shot that were that were as confused as i was they jumped up out of their beds because the thermal switched on them in the rain but because their noses were so jammed up they didn't know even know which direction it came from the wind hit me in the neck i'm looking at this one buck right here the wind hit me in the neck he was 35 yards over in his bed i could see just the tips of his antlers and i had had a strong wind in my face coming up the mountain sleet hit me in the face right but there was a break in the rain and the wind swirled and i mean it went 180 degrees it went straight from the buck to me to straight from the back of my neck to the butt and then as quick as it did that it shifted the wind again and the wind was coming from both my right and the buck's right that buck caught a whiff of me and jumped straight up in his bed but looked directly to the right of where I, I mean, it saved me. And what happened was, and I, I that was 15 years ago, 18, 15 years ago. And I started paying attention. I said, that buck was just, he did, he knew he smelled something, but he didn't know which direction that wind had come from. And I just got, I played on it cause he stood up and I just drew. And I thought he's just going to turn and look at me and bolt. I mean, like they always do, but he, he thought, that he had smelled it to the right and he jumped out of his bed and was looking straight to his right thinking something over there is where he'd picked that scent up from. And it gave me three seconds, five second window to slip an arrow in him. And I got it. I just had to judge him 35 yards and shot him. But I, I later analyzed that whole situation because I could feel that wind. I was like, man, that buck, even though they're, they live, say five years, 365 days a year, 24 seven, they're a wild mule deer. And we say their nose will never fool them. That deer's nose fooled him. He smelt something, but he didn't know which direction it came from. So yeah, the wind can swirl and mess you up, but that's not a guarantee that's going to sabotage you to, to failure. It could sabotage you. It could sabotage him as much as it sabotaged you. You know what I mean? And there's two instances in my life where the wind screwed the deer up, but he was just as confused as I was. You know, when I say, I'm not confused. I know what happened. The, the, the wind shifted direction. He picked up my scent because the, the, the steady thermal that I'd planned on for that stock gave out on me, but the wind swirled, but it was a swirl. And so just because it hit me in the back of the neck, that wind was swirling. It was swirling. So say that wind was swirling and it hit me on the left side of my neck. Well, in the next 35 yards, did it go straight line to that deer? Did it swirl 10 yards to my right? And then the next swirl caught him from that direction. You, you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And he jumped up, and he's looking that way like I smelt something come from right there. Well, just because that wind swirled right here doesn't mean it was straight line to that deer. You, I wish you could put a, a big you know, yellow cloud or a, a flow green cloud in a mountain basin for a day and just watch and see what that, what, so you could see what the air is doing because I've seen multiple instances where I thought for sure I was screwed that I wasn't. And, and, and that swirling wind is not on a dead path, whatever direction it's going. And, uh, or I should say, but 
99% of the time, it is. It's a straight line straight to where you don't want it to go. When the wind shifts, <laughs> it's going straight where you don't want it to, and there's no fooling that buck. But I can point to two mounts in my room right now where swirling wind got the deer killed because he was confused. He smelled something that made him stand up, but it, he didn't look the direction that I thought that he smelled it from. He smelled it from a different direction. So, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Swirling, that's super swirling interesting, wind, yeah. Swirling wind can mess you up, but, man, it ain't – hunting is hunting, and it ain't over till the fat lady singing, and you never know when that – I've – the buck I killed this year, I, I this this is not popular. This has nothing to do with the wind. Well, it, it does have a little something to do with the wind, and and it's not a popular topic. But it was it was it was amazing how over the years of shooting archery. You know, there, I shot pro series for a long time. I shot you know in the ASAs and the IBOs and state level pro class in Colorado against some of the best shooters in the country. Live right there in Colorado, and I'd shoot in the pro class there, and and I. I I was shooting in the professional division, but even somebody shooting in the professional division, you can get target panic and you have to adjust for that target panic. Meaning if I, if I'm shooting a trigger where I have the ability to punch the trigger with my index finger and I get my pen anywhere near that spot, I get this overpowering sense of, uh, anxiety and I have to shoot the arrow and unless you have it you don't understand it but if you have it you know exactly what I'm talking about if you'll lock that pin up at six o'clock low and that started happening to me more and more and more and more the older I got um, I started miss shooting animals really low or shooting right under them I kept shooting the briskets on deer or I kept just completely missing them right and so I'm like I never do that when I shoot a back tension or hinge style release. So in 2014, I absolutely committed 100% to shooting a hinge style release all the time for hunting, for target, for everything, whether, and, and now it don't matter if it's hogs, turkeys, elk, mule deer, whatever. I'm just going to shoot a hinge because 99% of the time, no matter what my pin is going to be where I want it to hit. And if that animal can move out of the way before I can make that shot break, then that's just what's going to happen. But at least my pin is dead center on what I want to hit because if I executing my rhomboids, making my back tension work, I have zero problem keeping my pin in the middle of that bull, that elk, that mule deer, whatever it is. So what happens with that, though, is you commit to that kind of a shot. You need a calm animal broadside. And, and you can't have an alert animal, um, or you can, but you, you've got to activate your shot faster. And, and that's when you create anticipation. You've got to naturally let the shot break. Well, this year, uh, on my mule deer hunt out West, I had a buck, I, I was out of cover and I'm like, well, the bucks broadside feeding. I'd seen them. I'd stalked in. There were several bucks and there were some does, but I got to the edge of my cover the buck's out eating acorns at 65 yards. I range him broadside, perfectly calm, just like shooting my 3D target at home. I'm like, man, I'm going to, this is as far as, this is close as I'm going to get. I'm out of cover. This is a nice deer. I'm going to go ahead and shoot him. He's facing to my left. He's broadside feeding to my left. 
arrange him 65 yards, draw back. I set my sight. I have a slider. I got five pins, 20 through 60. I just moved it down to where my 60 yard pin is now dead on at 65 yards. And as I'm drawing back this head, eight or nine yards in front of me in this grass that I never saw just pops her head up. It's a doe and she's between me and the buck and I'm, I hit anchor and I'm like, Oh crap, you know, and she blows and stops and she runs out into the meadow and it alerts the entire herd of deer that I'm there. My buck is still broadside, but he's not feeding anymore. He's, he's looking at her. I am all about accuracy and quiet. I do not care how fast my bow is, period. I only chronograph my bow so that I can make a sight tape to match what I need it to be. But I don't care. if as, as, I say I don't care. As long as it's, say, more than 260 feet per second, I don't care how fast it is. I don't care if it's 315 or 295 or 287 or 265. I, I do not care as long as it's over, say, 260 and it's super, super quiet. And it's super, super accurate. That's all I really care about. Well, I for a long time, I did care about speed. But speed, if you're going to have speed, then you're probably going to have a little bit of noise. Well, my bow this year was super quiet. And it was super deadly. But it was not super fast. I think I was shooting 276 feet per second. And so I, I come to anchor. The doe moved, but the buck's still broadside. I committed to the shot. I'm like, I'm going to shoot. I'm already at full draw. I'm at anchor. My pin's on right in the wheelhouse. I'm going to go ahead, and, and I activated my rhomboid. The, the exact second I shot, the buck switched ends and took off in a run. And you know when an arrow leaves the bow, everything's a blur. From that point on, everything's a blur. You commit to, hey, I'm going to shoot, and whatever happens when the bow goes off, that's, that's, between, that's between, until the bow breaks, it's between me and, and the deer. After the shot breaks, that's between the deer and the deer gods. I don't know what's going to happen, but I shot the shot. That deer swapped in and was now headed back to the right. He was facing left when I shot him. At the shot, not because he heard my bow go off, just the timing of the events that happened, the doe alerted the herd. The buck swapped in and went to go the other way. I heard a smack. I thought I shot an oak tree. The deer is running for his life, right? And he, and he goes out of sight. And then he comes back up into sight on this hill. And I'm thinking, man, that's, that's going to be too far out of range. You know, if he, and he stood there broadside. Like I could have got another shot at him, but, but I think he was like over 100 yards. I'm like, I'm not going to shoot that far at him. And all of a sudden, he just does this little spin and falls over, does a mackerel. And I was like, what? I hit him somewhere. I hit him somewhere good enough to kill him. And I went over there, and I shot him directly through the femoral arteries. He turned to go away. My arrow was still on path. It was going. And it went in his right hand on the back side of his right hand and came out the front side of his left hand and um, killed him as fast or faster than a lung shot or a heart shot. And he was empty. It completely bled him out. My point of telling all that is just like swirling winds or a broken shot, it ain't over until it's over. And sometimes you think you absolutely have no chance, but you did everything right. You practiced all year. You, you picked everything just right. Your broadheads are razor sharp. You've done everything you can to make the best shots that you can and do that. Go make the very best shot that's ethical that you can and let everything else work itself out. Whether it's swirling wind or swirling deer, sometimes things just work out to your favor and you, you just simply can't control every aspect 
of, of a hunt. And I think people nowadays with the self-gratifying, I want satisfaction right now, they, they expect they expect that and then and, and they don't put enough faith in, hey man, just just let things work themselves out, you know. And I know that seems like a tangent, but it seemed like a proper story to tell in that setting that, you know, yeah, swirling wind didn't sabotage every single hunt and deer moving at the last second because I shoot a hinge didn't, you know, a lot of people cringe on somebody shooting a hinge style release for hunting, but those of us that have to do it, that's really the only way to do it. Man, it is. I'm with you. I shoot a back tension style. I shoot a thumb release and I actually started cheating that a little bit to where, okay, I shoot a thumb really well where I activate my back. I shoot back tension. I wait for my opportunity, pull, 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 shot breaks and they die. That went great for a lot of years. And then I was like, well, you know, but if I need a quick shot, I can, I can force it. I can make it happen. And then that quick shot started turning back into that target panic, and now my pin doesn't want to aim where I want it to aim. And so I had some thoughts about what I was going to do, and I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll go back to a, a, a trigger. And it just started to drum up all these bad habits of mine. I wasn't shooting as good. So, yeah, I'm back to a hinge as well and a back tension and shooting it really well. And it's like I either have the time to execute a perfect shot and I need to pull, pull, pull until my shot breaks. But if that, like a rut and buck's just moving and I don't get that shot, that's just the way it is. I just want to release a perfect arrow or I don't want to shoot, you know. And so I had to get yep. away from any punch or any forcible actions on that trigger where now it's just like I, I, I have to pull, pull, pull till the shot breaks and he dies. But if I don't get that opportunity or I can't make a quick shot, that's just the way it is. He's going to walk out of my life. But you're right. You don't have control over every scenario. And I... I find that that one in four mule deer will jump my string. One in four antelope will jump my string. One in three whitetails. One in three axis deer, they'll jump my string. And I shoot the same way you do, about 260 feet per second. I've only got a 26-and-a-half draw length. And so I shoot a heavy arrow, 450 grains. I want my bow quiet, and I want it accurate, exactly what you said. I shoot the same five-pin slider that you shoot. Accuracy is king in the mountains. You you want to hit where you're aiming. But, uh, yeah, I I, I noticed that, um, you know, when when you're shooting at those critters like that, you know, that, that uh, let's see, I forgot, I... I lost where I was going. I got talking through the setup. You, have, you made so many great points there, Mark. But it doesn't always happen like you want. And those animals will jump your string. And I find that it doesn't matter if they're relaxed or if they're on guard. Like, I'll have a mule deer. You know, I've had them sitting in their bed. They have no idea I'm even in the county. And I shoot my quiet bow with my heavy arrow. And he jumps my string before my arrow gets there. Or I've had them react and spin away. Like, they're just out there feeding. And I wait for them to feed into me execute a perfect shot and i'll watch that deer roll and get out of the way of the arrow before it gets there so you just don't have control over everything you just got to do your absolute best and then let the cards fall where they do and sometimes uh sometimes a little luck never hurts either (laughs) (laughs) i i i I take lucky over good any day man uh but uh yeah you know the deer didn't jump my string he was simply moving because a doe said there's something over here that stinks and it's ugly and we probably need to get out of the way i don't know what this is she's making racket and she's moving the deer was still broadside but you know through your peep sight you're you're super super focused i mean you're you're committed once you're an anchor and you're committed and you're locked up pulling there's no there is no peripheral vision anymore it is total tunnel vision straight to that 12 ring 
and the in the body the body the deer's body movement was he was he was still broadside yep. and that's when the shot broke but I mean, there was no time to change my mind or think about this or think nope. about that and that is with a trigger either you're that's the point where you're going to punch it or you let it down and and that, and learning how to let down that takes training just like learning to execute a good shot you've got to train to let down when things aren't right but it, my mind was telling me this is still right. This buck is still standing still. He's not moving. These deer over here are moving, but that deer over there is not moving. And it's, by that time, all this is going on in a millisecond in your mind. And boom, man, a shot breaks. But but before that, that, that just tells you a bow and arrow is never going to be a rifle. It's still a bow and arrow, man. That yep. deer was 65 yards, and he swapped. He had enough time to swap ends and start in a different direction by the time that arrow impacted, but it also just amazes me to this day. I've been bow hunting since I was 13. So 35 years of bow hunting. And I still am amazed at how formidable and how lethal a razor sharp broadhead is. You know, it's like I hit this deer in the ham and I, and it just died faster than almost all of the deer I shoot in the heart. You know, there there was no laying there, lifting his head up for a minute, looking around. It was nothing, man. That deer, it hit that deer. It was a loud smack. And it's probably because it's ricocheting off of ham bones, you know, going through both hams. It had to have hit some bones. But the broadhead, you know, the arrow just skipped across the, across the, the, the meadow there. And, you know, I found it like 40 yards beyond the deer. And uh, he, he just ran down a dip and up the other side, did one little spin, laid down. And it was gruesome from where I hit him to where he laid. But from where he laid to getting him in the Jeep, there wasn't a drop of blood. I think he just completely just 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 emptied himself out. But it just amazes me how just how effective, you know, a modern broadhead is. I mean, it just it, it probably sounds weird for a guy that's bow hunted his entire life, but it, I think that's just the intrigue and the lure of bow hunting is you still, no matter how how modern it gets, you're still putting a sharp stick through a wild animal. And man, that just, it just still gets to me. It just still trips my trigger. I love it. Just like you love it. Yeah, <laughs> and like it's... everybody listening to it loves it. It just, it's like, you don't even believe it can happen until it happens. You're like, oh, that was easy. But until then, from from right now today, December the third, what's today? December the fourth. Today we're training. You know, we're drinking all of our sports drinks, and we're working out, and we're going to the gym, and we're looking at our maps, and we're buying all the data, and we're getting the new boots from UPS, and we're going to shoot all the new bows, and all of these things are happening in the hopes of getting a stick through a wild animal come next fall, and you expect it to happen. Guys like us that are uniquely successful more times than not we are masters at our craft and we expect success but the instant you walk up on that beautiful thing laying there and you took him with a stick it still amazes you right like i'm still amazed this happened i can't no matter how many of them i get for the rest of my septembers for the rest of my life until i'm some old geezer 90 years old up on the side of a mountain looking down on this gray-bodied mule deer i'm still going to be in awe of them that I was able to get that with a broadhead. It just, I don't know, kind of cheesy, man, but it just makes me feel good and it blows my mind at the same time. 
Man, I'm with you. I think that's a great place to leave it. It it does feel like it's meant to be when it happens. It feels so difficult, so challenging, uh, so mission impossible, and then you stick a perfect arrow through something, and that 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 arrow harvests them. And it just um it feels like it's meant to be, like you made all the right moves. But man, it's just been awesome to to meet you and get to talk to you on a podcast like this. To to talk for over an hour on bow hunting uh, means a lot to me, Marcia. Thanks a bunch for taking the time. And um yeah. Let's check in again here after your season, or maybe I'll run into you at one of the shows. Okay, Brian, I appreciate the opportunity, and tell all of my friends there at Eastman's, I still think of them as family, and and, uh, hopefully next year I have one of those really epic seasons, and uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I'd I'd like to get my mug back in that that beautiful magazine, the bow hunting magazine, so maybe I'll have a great season, and I can share the adventure with all the readers of Eastman's. Oh, we'd love to have you. And uh, one time, too, I really enjoy your social media. You do a great job of posting. So where can uh, people find you on your social media? Muley Slayer 1. I got I got dubbed Muley Slayer by my friends a long time ago, and I turned it into a brand. And uh, it's not, you know, <laughs> the brand is Muley Slayer, but it's, it's about everything almost but killing. I mean, you know, I'm a conservationist. I'm a lifetime member of the Mule Deer Foundation. I speak every year uh, at the Western Hunting Expo there in Salt Lake. I do seminars on how-to um, hunting. And actually, I have uh, my friend Robbie Denning is going to share the uh, the stage with me this year. We're going to do a panel on Saturday, and we're going to have our own seminars on Friday. And that's just a great place that I go, and I, I, I network and, and fellowship about mule deer hunting there. Uh, so people can find me there, but uh, I write in their magazine every. It's a bi-monthly magazine. I have a, uh, I have an article almost every time in that magazine. But on social media, uh, I have my uh, Muley Slayer. It's just Muley Slayer on Facebook, but on Instagram, it's um, Muley Slayer One, the number one. Somebody had already got Muley Slayer years ago before I got it. So, yeah, you know, I have a genuine following. I, I don't do contests and give things away, and I don't shop for people's likes. Uh, I have over 8,000 followers, and they're genuine relationships that I answer every message and talk to folks. And, and I'd rather have 8,000 that I know and I'm a friend with to have 100,000 just to to get free gear or whatever that gets you in this life. So, if you go follow me on there and let's talk mule deer hunting, bow hunting, and anything else you want to talk about. I'm with you. Well, um, great. Thanks again, Mark, and, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Brian. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Um, yeah, really nice guy in Mark Smith, really genuine. Um, it's just great to talk to him just in, and um, like you say, compare notes and find differences. And, and, um, I just love a, a bow hunter's mindset, you know, hunting those things and hunting aggressively. And so, um, I really enjoyed talking to him and, and, uh, appreciate him being on and sharing so much information. So, um, yeah, it's a, that's a wrap. Another show. Um, thanks to Six Hour Optics. Uh, again, just super impressed with their rangefinders. I really think they're the best ones made. And then also really liking their glass and their binos and their spotting scopes. Um, make sure to check those out. And with that, yeah, just, um, man, back to training full time, you know, catching up on work. Uh, that hunting season, that fall season is so long. So, yeah, nice to kind of get things back to normal and, and um Got that house finished up, which is a, with which is just a huge weight off my shoulders. So that just feels amazing. And so, 
yeah, just focusing on my training, um, mental toughness, making sure I'm getting out every single day for my runs, no matter how cold, how much snow's blowing sideways, uh, just getting out there with Gunny and hitting the hills, getting some longer ones, good elevation, um, and, and then just my my body weight exercises, you know, making sure I'm, I'm doing my pull-ups and push-ups and, and uh, lower back exercises and then stretching. It's amazing how fast us guys lose our flexibility. Uh, it seems like um, you almost need to stretch every single day just to maintain your flexibility. If you really want to gain flexibility, it's almost two times a day, but I've been making a good habit of when I'm watching TV in the evenings or, you know, before I sit down with the wife, I'll, um, I'll do some stretching and then I'm, I'm really good about stretching, um, in the sauna after runs, but, uh, just so beneficial to, to overall health and, and fitness, that flexibility is so important. And then weight training. So just feeling really strong, getting in my miles, um, just ready for the next adventure here. So, um, got my shooting all dialed in, got that new bow ready to rip. So I think I'll take that to Arizona and, uh, yeah, just feeling good. I, I like, um, uh, fitting in this, this training just year round. It just feels like I'm really working hard towards my goals and where I want to be and, and, um, really trying to improve my skill set, both at shooting and, and, and hunting. Gosh, I've been diving into map research lately, just looking into different states and different tags and trying to get a plan together for the next year. Um, just a it's, it's a fun process, every step of it, from the fall hunting season when you're you're going like heck to get in miles and get opportunity. But I, I love preparing and, and, and you know, getting my, my body in good shape, my shooting in good shape, my mind right, my mental toughness. I like having this little bit of time off where I can really focus on improving that. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's just a what, a what a great passion, uh, the bow hunting, this, this thing we found that you can take – you know, you're you're not like a professional athlete where you're done at, at 30 years old or 35 years old or 40. Or, you know, you can just keep keep bow hunting and keep pushing the limits uh, of what you can accomplish and what you can do. Just what a what a great place to put my energy. It's just so healthy for me. I I just love it with every fiber of my being. So yeah, just enjoying life to the fullest, training hard, uh, shooting and and uh, getting ready for AZ. Um, I'm going to really work hard to put an arrow into a mature coos. I think we'll hit the rut right this year. Bunch of spots um, been looking at that we've that we've been before and new spots I want to explore. Just super excited to get down there. And I'm sharing the hunt with my buddy Dan. Uh, I don't think we're going to film it, which is, um, which is a good thing too. I like filming and capturing it, but really... One to two hunts a year is good for me for filming. I I like to get my own personal enjoyment out of it too. And so, um, yeah, me and Dan, uh, uh, or Dan and I, we just uh, we hunt so much alike and get along so well. And it'll just be a, a great handful of days I can go spend with him traveling down there and hunting. So ought to be an absolute riot. So just working hard to get to that place and, and uh, won't be too long. And I'll have my stuff loaded up in the truck and headed down. So... All right. Well, that's a wrap. Um, yeah, I'll check in with you guys next week. Keep working hard towards your goals, and, and uh, here's to a, a great 2019.